my, my wife is so good to me. She uh, wanted me to clarify, and I think she's absolutely right. She is wise, and I try to listen to her feedback in humility, uh, that we, we trace our heritage back way more than 500 years as Christians. We go back to Jesus in the New Testament. We, we go back to Genesis. So um, it, it's much more than just 500 years. So thank you for that. Let me pray for us. Father, we do delight in your word, and we thank you for your kindness in giving it to us. And Lord, I, I'm, I'm not unaware of the fact that this life can be wearisome. That while it is wonderful to bless your name and to praise you, God, we go through seasons that are difficult, where our hearts are heavy. And so I pray that you would encourage us this morning. For those that can bless you because they are in a blessed place, Lord, we thank you for that. But we pray that you would also lift up those who are struggling to bless you. Maybe the people whose joy has been sapped for whatever reason. Lord, would you refresh them? Would you remind them of your goodness and your kindness? And would you lead them in praise of your name again, I pray? And we do thank you so much for your word and and for the rich history of the church that we stand on, for the people who have come before us, who have taught us, who have, who have given us wisdom of, as they have sought your word. And Lord, I pray that we would be humble enough to lean on your word, to trust in your word, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give us the courage to believe what it says and to live according to it. And so we ask, Father, that you would bless this time, make it fruitful for our lives, we pray. Amen. Uh, On October 16th, 1555, the scholars Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were burned at the stake in the courtyard at Oxford University for their belief that the church is built on the authority of Jesus Christ and not on the Pope in Rome. They were labeled heretics And they were told that unless they affirmed the absolute authority of the Pope over the church in equal measure to the Word of God, they would be condemned to burn to death in this public square. You can go there to this day and see a monument to these men. Ridley and Latimer themselves, they were Protestants. They were reformers. They were unwilling to accept that the decrees of any man could equal the word of God in authority and therefore be as authoritative as Scripture. They rejected that idea. And because of their conviction that the final authority for the church is Scripture alone, the funeral pyres were lit beneath their feet and they were quickly torched alive for their Reformation faith. And as the flames overtook the pile of wood to which they were tied, Hugh Latimer turned to his friend Ridley, Nicholas Ridley, and he said these words, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle in England as I hope by God's grace shall never be put out. And there they died. This was the conviction that shook the world in the 1500s. That the church was in bad shape. It was in desperate need of revitalization. And the fact that the Reformation did burn in England in the decades following shows the faithfulness of God to these men. 
But you need to understand that the fire of the Reformation was first kindled 38 years prior to this event, and it was kindled in Germany when an inconspicuous little monk with a tongue like a serpent nailed his 95 theses on the door of the chapel of Wittenberg in Germany. This was like a a public forum where you could post your thoughts and people could discuss them. That monk was Martin Luther, and he boldly nailed his 95 theses on the door. And in those 95 theses was a protest against the abuses of the medieval Catholic Church. And his protest would truly set the world ablaze with theological refinement. The backdrop for Martin Luther's uh, rural rebellion was the corrupt and abominable practice that had snuck its way into Catholicism like bread mold corrupts bread. And Luther was bold enough to stand up and call it what it was. And it's important, I'm going to give you some context here, and it's important that we understand that at this point in history, the Christian faith was far more than just a religion, unfortunately. It was far more than just a set of convictions that moved people, tragically. It was an empire that for a thousand years had shaped the Western world. The Pope was more than just a spiritual leader. He was like a king ruling over his subjects, reigning over the entire continent of Europe and even further, with authority beyond just lands and decrees, but a self-claimed authority over souls over eternal destinies. As the Catholic Church formed and grew over the centuries, it was Pope Innocent III in roughly 1200 AD. He launched an aggressive campaign to grab more power for the church against uh, political leaders. And he declared himself a minor god. Listen to these words. As he was consecrated Pope, this is one of the things that he said while he was preaching. He said, I am placed between God and man, below God, but above man. I am less than God, but more than man. I am he who will judge all and be judged by none. Man, that is a radical, authoritative abuse that stands in stark contrast to Jesus, who said, I am your master, and yet as your master, I'm going to wash your feet and serve you. And so you too, those who are in authority and spiritual leadership, ought to expect that your role is service, humility, lowliness. Instead, the power and the authority of the Pope, it grew and grew and grew until mankind could really no longer stand up under these spiritual abuses. And at Luther's trial at the Council of Worms, Cardinal Cajetan, who was interrogating Luther, took the Catholic view of the Pope to its full logical conclusion when he said these words to Martin Luther. Listen, the Pope is above the council and also above the Holy Scriptures. Recant. Now the stewing abuse of papal authority finally came to an explosive head in the early 1500s with Pope Leo X. Leo was an ambitious man. He had plans to build a monument, essentially, to the Christian religion, a global historical monument that would stand through the ages, proclaiming the superiority of the Christian faith through the centuries. In fact, I just got to see some amazing pictures of this monument. It's the Vatican. And unfortunately, his plan to build St. Peter's Basilica 
um, the Sistine Chapel, these kinds of monuments came at a super heavy price tag. Again, someone from our church recently went there and they let me look at these pictures and you won't even believe the beautiful opulence. I hope someday I get to go there. Maybe you'll have a chance. It's, it's an incredible piece of history. But it came with a heavy, heavy price tag. And Leo ended up strapped for cash. He couldn't finish his building project. He couldn't finalize his dream and make it a reality. And so enter the scheme of Albert of Mainz and his precocious monk, Uh, Johann Tetzel. They formulated a plan where in exchange for greater political power for Albert, who was not a religious authority, he was a political leader, the Pope would let him raise money to finish building this building project by using the marketing schemes of Johann Tetzel, this monk. And under the authority of God himself, I put it in quotes, through papal fiat, meaning by the decree of the Pope, Tetzel was sent all throughout Catholic Europe selling a godless product, product, the forgiveness of sins. He was selling it for cash. We've come to know this today as the sale of indulgences, and it can be rightly said that it was the sale of indulgences that truly gave birth to the Reformation. With an indulgence, a sinner could use money, submit money to Johann Tetzel, and for that money, buy forgiveness from sins authorized by the Pope himself. A piece of paper that said that you were no longer guilty before God because of your financial contribution to the church. There's a story, it's probably fictional, but I think it's a good one that illustrates this anyway, that one night, Martin, well not one night, the night of October 30th, Martin Luther was walking down the street in the evening, and he sees a drunk peasant in the, in the gutter. And he begins to rebuke this man and tell him, this is beneath you. You should be living in a way that's honoring God. And the drunk peasant proceeds to pull out his piece of paper, his indulgent, and say, the Pope has given me permission to drink and live in sin because I've bought forgiveness of sins. And Luther was so disgusted by the fact that Christians were being deceived into a life that is so unbecoming of Christ that because they had purchased a piece of paper stamped with the seal of the leader of the Christian church, that they were then free from the guilt of their sins, that he then went and posted these 95 theses. Again, I I assume it's probably a fictional story, but it, it gets the point across. And it gets worse because not only could you buy indulgence for your own sin, but you could purchase a piece of paper for a dead relative that would guarantee that they could escape the suffering of purgatory and hell, that they would be immediately whisked away to heaven as soon as the transaction was completed and Johann Tetzel had your cash in his hands. Tetzel even came up with this nifty little slogan that went like this. Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory it springs. Dead serious. And if it isn't already obvious, let me point out to you the deep and despicable corruption of this kind of religious profiteering. The Pope, while not directly involved, I mean he wasn't on the streets selling these things, But he was using his authority to shake down the poor peasants and fleece them of their money, selling them a piece of paper that said, God forgives you of your sins so that when you gave money to the church to help its materialistic building projects, God no longer had any authority to judge you for what you had done. 
And it was the poor and ignorant peasants who were subject to the greatest abuse of authority. They ignorantly were trusting these spiritual leaders, their bishops, their priests. They were paying this heavy, heavy toll for a piece of paper that they really found to be worthless. I mean, imagine if I stood up here and said to you, we want to build a church. We want to build a building. And so for 10 grand, I'll sign a piece of paper that means that you're forgiven of your sins and you can help us build our church, right? That's a lot of money. And frankly, for the peasants, an indulgence was no small price. They were deceived into believing that the Pope himself had the authority to sell absolution from sin. Because popes through history had slowly indoctrinated people into thinking that the Pope was more than a man, higher than Scripture, even if he was still slightly less than God. And this was the spark that set Martin Luther ablaze. Angry over this sense of false security that the church was offering to people, he penned his 95 theses. His goal was really just to begin a discussion. Is this right? Is this biblical? But because of the recent invention of the printing press and the burden that was already heaped on these people, this thing caught on like wildfire. And Martin Luther found himself the author of quite a controversy within the church. Listen to just a few of his 95 theses, though. You can look these up online. They're actually not very long. You could read them in probably 15 minutes. Let me just list a few of them. Number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, Matthew 4.17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Number 32, those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. That's why I said he had a tongue like a serpent. Number 94, Christians should be exhorted to be diligent in following Christ, their head, through penalties, death, and hell. And number 95, and thus be confident of entering into heaven through many tribulations rather than through the false security of peace. But Luther, in his desire to spark a conversation, got far more than he bargained for. As his written thoughts again were taken up and put through the printing press and quickly disseminated across the continent, he started a brush fire that would change the world. The brush fire turned out to be the Protestant Reformation, and it would have five fundamental convictions, the five solas, which again, I've put in that piece of paper for you to look at at some point. And I want you to understand that the sum of the whole is greater than the parts when we're talking about the five solas. In other words, it's not about just one. It's about all of these and the way that they come together to define the Reformation. So this month, we're going to look at each one of these solas in celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And today, we're going to focus on sola scriptura. It's a Latin phrase, sola means one, only. And I bet you can guess what scriptura means. Scripture, right? So the idea is, Scripture alone is our final authority. Not popes, not even councils. Not congregational democracy or even theological prowess. It's not the pastor who preaches, the scholar who interprets. It's not the theologian who studies or the church hierarchy that ultimately determine 
the authority for the church. It is the objective Word of God. It is Scripture alone to which we appeal as our final authority regarding the will of God for His people. Now, please, don't misunderstand, okay? Sola Scripture does not mean nuda Scripture. Nuda, again, a Latin word. I bet you can guess what it means. It means bare. Bare. So it's not as if sola scripture means that we strip the church of all of its history, all of its theology, all of its tradition entirely. We're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. What we're trying to say is that the final authority on all matters relating to life is scripture. But it is not the only authority. See, the reformers were not foolish enough to burn all of the theology books They weren't foolish enough to discard all of the Christian literature, the commentaries, the creedal confessions, the council decrees that had come before. They recognized the value and the importance of those things. The reformers weren't interested in divorcing the Christian faith from the context within which it had flourished through the centuries. They wanted to consider the wise things that those who had come before them had thought and written and said. They weren't suggesting that the church should abandon all of the teaching of learned men and women through the centuries and only read the Bible. The reformers were committed to maintaining a church authority structure, to continuing to build on the foundation that was already there, the stones that had been laid by those who had come before, carefully seeking to understand what Scripture means and what it teaches. They were not abandoning the rich history of Christian thought. Rather, they were saying our final appeal must always come back to God's Word itself, not to some man in a chair or a group of men in a room. And I have tried to encourage you to do the same if you've been around Maricopa Springs. When you stand before God, you should be prepared to say, Father, I lived my life the way that I did Not because Grady told me that I should, but because your word, Father, was the rudder that steered my life. So please understand, theology books are good. I love them. I have a few of them. Christian history is rich and it is helpful. Those who've come before us have left us wonderful gems of wisdom by which we can understand our Bibles and our Christian faith better. But at the end of all of that, sola scriptura, Sola Scriptura, Scripture always trumps man and not the other way around. At the end of all of our studies of lessons learned by those who've come before us, we ultimately submit our lives to Scripture and not to something else. Okay, now, of course, it's important that we look at Scripture so that I can show you where this comes from, right? And not just history and tradition. And there's so many places that I could make you turn. I just want to just like do a quick flyby of a few of them. I could send you to 2 Timothy 3.16 that says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We're not going to go there though. I could send you to Deuteronomy 28 which says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of His commandments and all that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. 
Or I could take you to Job 40, where God rebukes men for thinking that they can compete with God in his infinite wisdom and power. Or I could take you to Matthew 7, where Jesus talks about the wise man. And he says, every wise person who hears these words and does them is like a man who builds his house on a rock. Or I could take you to Psalm 119, which you just heard. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. But I don't want you to go to any of those places, actually. I want you to go to Matthew 15. I could take you all over the place in the Word of God to places that tell us that Scripture is what we build our lives on. And nothing offers us greater wisdom than the Word of God through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. But because of the context of the Reformation, I want you to turn to Matthew 15. Matthew 15, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. It says, Then Pharisees and scribes, those are the experts, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And Jesus answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. In other words, it was customary for the children to take care of the parents before there was social security. And so the, the children would be required to care for mom and dad, but the Jews had made up a rule that says, if you give it to God, then you're exempt from God's law. You've done a greater thing, and so you don't need to honor your father and mother. Jesus says that they've created this tradition in verse 6, and therefore they need not honor his father. And he goes on, So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. The reason why I take you to this scripture is because I think it deals specifically with the issue of the authority of the Pope, the traditions which men set up, our propensity to pick and choose the parts of God's word that we don't like and that we like as if we know better than God and it's up to us to determine what we're going to follow from his word and what we're going to reject. I think this passage, more than any other, shows the danger of adding to Scripture something that man has declared is important when God has not done so. It helps us see that the commandment of God, His Word, the Scriptures, are what must ultimately influence our lives and determine the course of direction in how we live. What's going on here in Matthew 15 is actually a reference back to Exodus chapter 30. There we find in this list of commands that God tells the priests that when they're going to come into the tabernacle to minister before him, that it's necessary before they do that, that they wash and cleanse themselves. They wash their hands and they wash their feet. It is a specific command that God gives to the priests of Israel that before they minister before God in the tabernacle, they might wash and be clean and purified before they enter the presence of Yahweh. 
Nowhere do we find in the Old Testament law a commandment where God requires his people to wash their hands before they eat. Is it a good idea to wash your hands before you eat? Yes, I highly recommend it. Is it a commandment from God? No, it's not. It's a commandment from men. That in Matthew 15, religious experts elevated to the status of religious law. So the Pharisees are shocked that Jesus doesn't obey their personally created religious formulas. They've slowly begun to believe that tradition is equal to the law of God. And so when Jesus doesn't wash his hands, they think this must not be a God-fearing man. When in fact, Jesus has far more reverence for the laws of God and very little regard for the traditions of men. When I was at Wheaton College my sophomore year, uh, I made it a point not to pray at the table in the dining hall before I ate a meal. I wasn't trying to be uh, intentionally provocative or, or pers- uh, purposefully countercultural. Rather, I had realized that my prayer life was very stagnant and that the only time that I really went before God in prayer was this insincere moment before I ate my food. And those prayers, they were shallow, they were contrived, they were usually at a table with some friends, and so they were more performance-based so that those around me might think that I was a godly guy who prayed consistently. But I wasn't, it was a lie. And so I stopped praying before meals so that I wouldn't use that as an excuse to say that I have a rich prayer life, that I would be forced to go to God in prayer in other ways and not see that as a cop-out. Is praying before a meal a good thing? Yes, absolutely. I highly recommend it. Is it a biblical command that we pray before we eat our food? No. Scripture says that we should give thanks in everything and that we should pray without ceasing. Man, you should have seen the shocked looks of judgmental arrogance, the stares that I got from my, um, my friends at, at school when I told them that I had stopped praying before meals. It was like I was personally insulting God by breaking the traditions of men, when in fact my reason behind it was actually to seek God more faithfully. The point is, the Pharisees have no problem breaking the laws of God as long as they're upholding the traditions of men. They're desperately concerned with washing their hands before a meal so that they can look clean on the outside while they are filthy on the inside because of outright disobedience to God. And they've got it backwards. They have declared that the things of God are optional when the things of man are mandatory. So Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, 13, and he says these scathing words, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now consider this in light of my brief history lesson, okay? Pope Leo X, Martin Luther, the Reformation, Sola Scriptura, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. The leader of the Christian faith, the Pope, was breaking the law of God by extorting the poor, stealing from the poor peasants of his kingdom, declaring that people no longer needed to repent of their sins, which is a clear commandment Jesus gives, Rather, instead of repenting before God, a peasant can simply buy their way out from under the wrath of God by following these declared traditions of men. See, it's the same sin as the Pharisees. 
in Matthew 15, where the religious leaders have elevated themselves over the authority of God and his commands. And this is where sola scriptura becomes invaluable in the Protestant tradition, to steer people back to a greater faithfulness to God in his word. Now here I have to say again a a cautionary word so that you don't misunderstand. Neither Jesus nor Martin Luther were advocating for Christian anarchy. That's not what they were suggesting, where everyone does whatever they think is right in their own eyes and then, you know, backs it up with an occasional Bible verse. The book of Judges, if you've ever read it, reminds us how bad things get when people do what is, whatever is right in their own eyes, when people suffer from a lack of good spiritual leadership. Listen to Hebrews 13, because it's important you understand. Again, sola scriptura does not mean that God does not have a, 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 a process for leading his church in a healthy way. Listen, it says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's interesting that Luther, even in his 95 Theses, declares that if the Pope knew the way that the peasants were suffering because of the sale of indulgences, he would rather St. Peter's Basilica burn to the ground. Luther assumed the leadership was good. Unfortunately, it wasn't. And so what the point behind Jesus is saying and what Martin Luther fought for was not a church where there is no leadership, where we overthrow the hierarchies that God has established, where there is no authority, where there are no leaders or teachers. That is not the point. Jesus and Luther both understood the importance of godly Christian leadership. But the assumption is that the leaders that we're following are living a life worthy of imitating that they are faithfully teaching the Word of God and serving in humility the people under their care. And if they're not, then what is our ultimate final authority in determining how we live our lives? Is it what they say? No, it's Scripture. So if I ever got up here and told you to do something contrary to Scripture, then you would have to respond to me like Martin Luther did at his trial when he said, Unless I am convinced by Scripture, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Man, the principle of sola scriptura is so important today. It's just as important today as it was in 1517, 500 years ago. Today, people are trying to redefine the the meaning of the word truth. They're trying to redefine human sexuality. They're trying to redefine the dignity of the human life the description of the family, the meaning of love in all of its richness, and so many other things. I mean, I could go on. And we as Christians have to be as resolute as Martin Luther to engage the world in these ways, to explain that we cannot and will not accept the authority of men over and above the clear teaching of the word of the one true God. Our first obligation, it's not to popes, to kings, to presidents, to judges, to magistrates. Your first obligation, my first obligation is to Jesus. Our allegiance is to him. Our obedience is to him. And we live that out in the context of a church 
that shares those same values and convictions. And yet we also live it out in the midst of a world that tries desperately to assault and destroy precisely because we believe these things, precisely for our allegiance to Jesus. So my friends, I I, want to encourage you to cast off any immoral obligation you might feel to this world, to follow the decrees of men rather than the decrees of God. Let us search the Scriptures. Let us know them diligently so that we might see with conviction that our responsibility is to God alone. Let us know and understand the history of those who've come before us, the wisdom that they've contributed, but let us always check that with the pure and life-giving revelation of God himself. Let us obey the authorities under which God has placed us, like Romans 13 says, but let us never do it at the expense of our obedience to Jesus. Let us do good in the eyes of the world whenever we can, wherever we can, but let us first and foremost do good in the eyes of the Lord, whatever the cost. Let us, like the Protestants who have come before us, declare with conviction that we will do what Scripture and Scripture alone commands because our conscience is captive to the Word of God. I'm almost done, but give me another couple of minutes. You do understand that in order for us to do this, we have to know our Bibles, right? We have to read the Word of God. We have to study it. We have to be disciplined to do that on our own, but we also have to be disciplined to do that in community. We have to be disciplined to teach it to our children, like Scripture commands. We have to be disciplined to gather together in groups and to live it out in real life, like a family and apply it, like our mini-reformation that I was talking about. We have to love the Word of God as the primary source of nourishment for our souls. I mean, we cannot have our conscience be captive to the Word of God if we don't know the Word of God. And I close with this because statistically, Christians don't know Scripture. They don't know their Bibles. Statistically, Christians don't read their Bibles. Statistically, Christians are, you can look this up in Barna Research Group. Statistically, Christians are prone to build their lives on sort of a vague sense of Christian morality, which is a decent starting point, but they do that more than they build it on the declared Word of God. There's a funny website I like to go to called the Babylon Bee. You should check it out sometime. It, it's, it's Christian satire, so I warn you, it may, it may cut a little bit. But it's funny. And they had this article recently about a, uh, a new Bible that's coming out. And it's the dust-resistant Bible. <laughs> so you can leave your dust-resistant Bible on the shelf and never pick it up. And then, you know, that Sunday where you do feel inspired to go back to church, you can grab it without having to be afraid of the shame of the dust coming off when you walk in the door at church, right? The dust that will betray that you don't ever actually read it. And it's funny, but it's also a little bit painfully true, isn't it? And so I close again with just this encouragement. I hope it will quicken your heart. God wants deeply to meet you in the words of Scripture. He wants to lift up your soul. 
He wants to minister to you directly through the word of his wisdom. He wants to encourage you in the difficult season you're in. He wants to help you press on, to lift you up, to refresh you with the truth of his love. He wants to expand your mind with the magnitude of his power as it is portrayed in Scripture. He wants to fill you with hope in the greatness of his grace. And he's spoken so many precious words to you that you might know him and love him and follow him. He is inviting you into this deep and wonderful relationship with him through the words of Scripture that he has proclaimed. And you have only to pick it up and read it so that you might stare into the face of God who loves you so much. Man, yesterday I, was, I found myself, I was like, man, Jesus, I would lo- could you just like, let me have a cup of coffee with you? I spend a lot of time at coffee shops. Like, would you just literally meet me there and we could share a cup, cup of coffee? Like, give me an hour of your time. I'd love to run some questions by you. And then I realized that is what Scripture is. Do you see? I get that opportunity every time I crack open my Bible to read it. Moses, when he would meet with God, he would come out of the tent of meeting and his face would be aglow, literally glowing, shining from being in the presence of God. And oh, that in our dark world, more Christians would walk among the lost with their face aglow from meeting with God in his word. Oh, that in the darkness of this present age, our faces might shine with the light of the hope of the glory of Christ Jesus because we stand firmly on the word of God alone. Let me pray. God, would you make us creatures of your word? Would you make us bookish people? People who love to meet with you in this text that you have given us. Lord, you are so good and so faithful that you have delivered these words to us that we might look upon your face and see your glory and know you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would do that, that we would find it precious. That like the reformers who came before us, there would be a reformation in our hearts, a renewed love for the things that you have taught in Scripture. And Lord, as you show us these things, I pray that our faces truly would shine. That we would go out into this dark world like creatures who do not belong here. And as those people around us see our faces and our life, our joy, our contentment, our courage, our boldness, that they too would wonder, who is this God who has spoken in this way? Lord, give us a passion for your word, we pray. Amen.